Scripture tonight will be 1 Timothy 4. We'll be picking up in verse 6. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Trent is a, a great friend of mine. He, uh, I got to know him back at the Southwest School of Bible Studies, and uh, he was um, one of my groomsmen at my wedding, and um, uh, he actually followed me to San Marcos, where he's been uh, for the past 12 years, going on 12 years, doing uh, building the college work there at the McCarty Student Center on the campus of Texas State. Uh, Trent has a tremendous mind, and he has a tremendous talent and ability for proclaiming God's Word. I'm envious about a lot of things, but the thing I'm most envious about with regard to Trent is the ability and the sharpness of his mind that he can jot down two or three words on a napkin and preach an outstanding 45-minute sermon. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> and uh, I asked him to show me his notes for this evening, and uh, that's that's kind of the way it is. But uh, I hadn't... I realize that um, there's never been a time that he's spoken that I haven't been challenged to be more like Christ and to be a greater servant, a greater man of God. The reason why he's here this evening uh, is he's going to meet with our elders after a little while, but he and his wife are going to be leaving the campus work there at the Party Student Center and uh, going to Singapore, where it is that he's going to become one of the instructors at the Four Seas Bible Institute. Um, he's soliciting certainly funds, but also prayers, and I hope it is that putting a face to, uh, to name uh, will cause you all to pray for this effort and pray for him and his wife and family as they make this tr transition and also for him to um, uh, to get what they need as far as the uh, finances go, but also to uh, to do an outstanding work, which I know they will. I invite Trent to come and uh, preach the word to us. Thank you. Good evening. Well. Good evening, you fine-looking folks. It's good to see you. Good to be with you. Um, Andy, I was I was your best man at your wedding. Please remember that. And um, whenever he said, can preach a 45-minute sermon, people looked at their watch. That's all that happened. It is good to be with you. Certainly thankful for the opportunity to preach here and the invitation extended so graciously by the congregation and her elders. Uh, thankful to be here even for just a a little while with our good friends Andy and Catherine. Um, we miss them in San Marcos and hope that you're taking care of them here. Um, once you get to know them, they're okay. And uh, I'll vouch for them, but they're a little rough around the edges. Their kids are amazing. Um, it's good to be here. It's good to be here tonight. You know, we live in a world full of concession, a world full of, of compromise, of, of a, a coming together, a coalescence. And in so many aspects and avenues of life, this is necessary. Think about our current political spectrum. It would be good if there were more, maybe, compromise or consideration. Think about in a good relationship, whether it's a husband and wife or, or within a family unit or, or a dating relationship, even a work environment. And think about how that's needed to compromise, to coalesce, to consider other points of views, to make concessions. Think about good business practices. At times, we need to do those very things. But whenever it comes to matters of spirituality, we need to be very careful of concession, compromise, and coalescence. A few months ago, there was a famous senior pastor, as he is um, self-proclaimed, 
Uh, an author that if you were to walk down the religious aisle of your favorite bookstore, you no doubt would find a, a book or two or ten devotional uh, or, or something else written by him. And he spoke in regards to compromise in Christianity. And I want you to consider his quote by way of introduction tonight. He began by posing this question. He said, will we, meaning the very broad heading of what the world would call Christianity, will we prioritize our oneness over doctrinal peculiarities? His answer was yes. How about our baptism, our communion, our style of worship, our preaching? And he drove this point home that we need to coalesce, that we need to uh, come together, that we need to concede in regards to baptism or worship or preaching or even doctrine by saying being together or being one is more important than being theologically correct. But here's the trouble. It's not just one man speaking one statement and thankfully he was faced with backlash. I'm afraid that that is the mindset of the Christian world in which we live in, in the broadest heading. And I'm also afraid that at times we begin to think that there are things in this world, even within the church, that, that this idea or mentality has seeped into the church which our Lord purchased with His precious blood. That unity stands greater than doctrine, or relationships superior to doctrine, or that, that doctrine is an old-fashioned word, and it's only for old-thinking or old-fashioned thinking people. But the truth is, you and I as, as Christians could never, and would never want to, we could never compromise doctrine without compromising biblical teaching. Because that's exactly what doctrine is. Here's why doctrine is important. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. A passage of Scripture I hope that you're familiar with. We're going to be looking at a number of Scriptures this evening, over the next 45 minutes or so. So if you have a hard copy of your Bible, please take that out and study with us. Maybe you've got a, a, a pad or a, a um, pod or a phone or something with an eye in front of it, and you've got your favorite app. Open it up. Take a look at what the Bible has to say. In that familiar passage, 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16, it says every scripture, all scripture, is inspired by God and is profitable. And notice this first one, teaching. In so many of our versions and translations, especially the older ones, that is the word doctrine. You see, doctrine is important because it is the outcome of Scripture. When the early church, the church began, our children proclaimed it to us, and hopefully we sat along with them. In Acts chapter 2, when the church began, and those who heard the Word of God and faithfully received it were baptized, some 3,000 of them. Acts 2, 39-41. And in Acts chapter 2, it said the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or in teaching. I know that doctrine is important because it's the outcome of Scripture. I know that doctrine is important because the early church taught it and lived it. But the Bible would reveal to us that there are many doctrines, Ephesians 4 verse 14, in this world. However, even though those doctrines like waves and winds come from all different directions and take us all different places, there is only one doctrine which comes from God. The Apostle Paul would say in Galatians 1 beginning in verse 6, I marvel that you are so quickly being removed or removing yourselves 
I marvel that you are so quickly removing from Him who called you in the grace of Christ unto a different gospel, which is not another. You see, there is no other gospel save the one which came from heaven. It says that they would pervert the gospel of Christ, those that would pull you away. In Galatians 1 and verse 8 says, Though we, an apostle, or an angel from heaven would teach unto you any gospel other than that which you have already received, let him be anathema, given over to the judgment of God without the protecting blood of Jesus. Your version may say, accursed. As we have said before, so say we now again, Galatians 1.9, If any man preaches unto you any other gospel other than the one which you have received, let him be anathema. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3 would tell us that those who teach another doctrine are, if you'll allow me to summarize that verse, 2 Timothy 1.3, wrong. Those who would teach a different doctrine are wrong. Paul told Timothy, as I exhorted thee to tarry in Ephesus, when I was going into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge certain men, notice this, not to teach a different doctrine. And instead, the church would do, as Titus was told in Titus 2 and verse 1, to speak the things which befit sound doctrine. And so then the church is, is concerned about doctrine. I want to present a question to you this evening, and I want to answer it. We're going to answer it not with opinion or feeling. We're not going to answer it with the, the popular uh, things that we might find on, on Facebook or in the newspaper. We're going to answer it from the Bible. The question that we want to ask tonight is, why should I be concerned or why should I care about doctrine? Six points tonight. 45 minutes about right. Six points tonight very quickly. And the lesson will be yours. Why should I care about doctrine? Number one, why I care about doctrine. And I'm going to make this personal for a moment and see if we can't apply it to most of us, maybe all of us. Because I want to be an elder in the Lord's church someday. My wife and I have a goal, and we've had a goal maybe since before we were married, but certainly something we talked about from that time. That we desire to serve in that capacity, knowing that it would take not just a man, but also his family to complete that. Because of that, in our bedroom wall, we've hung the qualifications for elders from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, that they might serve as some type of goal for us to reach to. And as an individual who wants to be an elder and who would challenge young men to desire to be an elder and challenge young women to marry men who want to be an elder, I must be concerned about doctrine. Why? Titus chapter 1. Let's look there. Titus chapter 1. Allow your hands and your minds to engage in the lesson for just a moment. From the qualifications of elders in Titus 1, beginning in verse 7. It says, therefore, the bishop, your version may say overseer, must be blameless as God's steward, not self-willed, not soon angry, no brawler, no striker, not greedy of, of filthy lucre, but given to hospitality as a lover of good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-control. Notice Titus 1.9. Holding the faithful word, which is according to teaching that he might be able to exhort in sound doctrine and convict the gainsayer. I know that as someone who wants to be an elder, and your elders know this, they've received this charge uh, but through, through faith even now, and, and every elder of the Lord's church knows this, that they have an obligation in doctrine to do two things. On one side, to build up. And on the other side, keep reading in Titus 1.10. 
They're individuals whose mouths must be stopped, right? Continue reading. They might need to be rebuked sharply with what? Sound doctrine. And so the elder then would build up using doctrine. And the elder would stop a gainsayer and convict him that he might turn his heart to the gospel using what? Doctrine. In fact, there where Timothy served, it seems that there were some who, elders that is, who labored specifically in doctrine. First Timothy 5 and verse 17. Yours may say teaching. It's the same word. An elder must know that he has oversight of the flock, 1 Peter 5 and verse 2. And an elder knows, an elder knows that in that oversight, he must feed the flock. Consider Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. The Apostle Paul told the elders of Ephesus, those same ones to whom Timothy seemed to have, have preached to, at least on occasion. In Acts 20 and verse 20, 28, he said, Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers or bishops. To do what? To feed the church of our Lord which He purchased with His own blood. And so an elder knows that there are some types of doctrine that are vanity, Jeremiah 10 and verse 8. And an elder knows that Jesus taught some doctrine is eternally harmful. Matthew 16 and verse 14, when he said, Beware of the leaven of the scribes and of the Pharisees, because he was speaking about their doctrine. Matthew 16 and verse 12. And the, an elder knows that a live, an elder and a, a cook, a baker, knows the principle of 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6 a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And so a little unhealthy doctrine in the flock which God has made an elder and overseer becomes a problem. And there is a picture painted in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 17. And it says that there are some whose teaching, and he mentions too there, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that their teaching eats away like a, a corrosive liquid, an acid, or a cancer. In my version it says gangrene. There's a picture there of something decaying and rotting away because of an unhealthy doctrine being preached. And so our elders need to be concerned about doctrine. But I'm also concerned about doctrine because I am a minister, or a preacher, or a missionary, or an evangelist. Whatever title you would like to throw uh, in that direction, I'll take it. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Notice from our scripture reading, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Turn there together, please. <clears throat> Why should I care about doctrine? Because I see in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 4 that being a good minister involves teaching and following good doctrine. I see in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13 that I need to give heed to reading, exhortation, and doctrine or teaching is the same word. I see in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16 that a minister is to take heed or pay attention to give their mind over to Doctrine. You see, Timothy and anyone who would want to be a minister of the gospel must pay special attention to doctrine. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, in a passage in which Timothy is exhorted in this way, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, rebuke, 
exhort with all long suffering and guess what word ends that or punctuates that verse doctrine or teaching and so as one who is a minister I have to pay special attention and give my mind over I need to be concerned about doctrine notice the apostle Paul though in that same context we looked at in Acts 20 and 28 when he had called the, the Ephesian elders to, to meet him at Miletus he said in Acts 20 and verse 20 he said, I shrank not from declaring unto you anything that was profitable. I taught you publicly, probably in a, an assembly, maybe on the first day of the week, in a Bible class setting, like in the school of Tyrannus. He taught them publicly, but also he taught them house to house, privately. And if you skip down in that section a little bit in Acts 20 and verse 27, he said, I shrank not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. You see, the Apostle Paul, whenever he worked or ministered in a place, he was consistent in his teaching. The things which he said to one, he said to all. Now, no doubt he used some wisdom in regards to those things. But he was consistent in his doctrine. It's no wonder then, as he closed out 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10, he says this to Timothy, You did follow my doctrine. How could Timothy follow it? Because he knew it. The Apostle Paul had passed that on. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, The things which you heard from me, commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Paul was consistent in public and in private, and someone who wants to be a good minister of Jesus Christ will take heed to doctrine. But I also care about doctrine number three because I'm a Bible class teacher. I would say that in my, in my located work, that is primarily what I am. A Bible class teacher. In our desire to go to Singapore and work with the Four Seas Bible College, that will be my primary work. A Bible class teacher. I know that there is some similarity or overlap between a preacher and a teacher, and a lot of those things are the same. But realize, not every Bible class teacher is a preacher. And because of that, as someone who is a Bible class teacher, I am concerned about, I care about doctrine. Why? 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but instead they will heap to themselves, notice this, teachers, probably Bible teachers, at least pretend ones, teachers after their own lusts. Why? Because their ears itch. And so as a Bible class teacher, I care about doctrine. You see, because of that, some would turn away from the truth, and I don't want to see that happen. Jesus, the master teacher, and the greatest Bible class, if you will, Bible class teacher that any of us could imagine. He astonished people. You think about the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, which lasted from Matthew 5 through Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7 and verse 28, whenever Jesus concluded that great sermon, it said the people were astonished at His teaching. Your older versions will say doctrine, because that word there is not a it's not an adverb of style. It's not an adjective of descriptor. It's not even a verb like you would imagine teaching. It's a noun. You see, the same as in Matthew chapter 22, whenever the Scripture says again that they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. As Matthew 7, 28 and Matthew twenty-two thirty-three, 33, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. But not because He was great in varying His tone, though I imagine He was. Not because he was stylistically more capable than any other man, though I imagine he probably was. 
but they were astonished at the content of the message delivered, at the doctrine. And so as a Bible class teacher, no doubt I want to give some, some thought to style, to preparation, but above all, if I want to teach like Jesus, I'm going to teach doctrine. That word, didache or didache, is a noun. And they were astonished at that, his doctrine. It's no wonder they were astonished at his doctrine. In John 7 and verse 15, he said, My teaching, your older versions will say doctrine there, My teaching is not from me, it is from him who sent me. The teaching which Christ brought, not the style, not the intonation, not the facial expression, not the nonverbal communication which makes up so much of our sermon. But it was the teaching, the content, the doctrine of the thing taught. Friend, here is something amazing. You and I will never be the master teacher. We want to be like him. But you realize that we can teach the exact same thing Jesus did? That's empowering. If you and I have the same doctrine, you and I can teach the same thing Jesus did. Number four, I'm concerned or I care about doctrine because I am a parent. I have four children at home. Sometimes I remember all four of them. Sometimes three or four. You know, you estimate whenever it gets to be that many. Four children at home. Uh, they're staying with Grandma. We're so thankful for that, especially for the drive over and back tonight. But also, we have adopted, we were talking on the way up, we've adopted countless number of college students um, that, that seem like, at times, our children. Had the opportunity in working with young people, uh, especially those who are 18, 19, 20 years old, to, to watch them come, in, maybe even into my office as an atheist, and, and leave as a theist, and come back in, and then leave as a Bible believer, and come back in a third time, and, and go ready, ready to go to the baptistry, to become a, a, a Christian. And because of that, we have children in the faith, if you will. And as a parent, and I look at these individuals, these, these young people, I am concerned and I care about doctrine. When it comes to my children in particular, I am accountable for the teaching they receive while in my house. In fact, if someone were to come into my house and, do not, and does not bring the doctrine of Christ, 2 John verse 10, do you know what I'm supposed to do? I'm not supposed to... Lend him a Godspeed. I'm not supposed to amen what he says. Because I am accountable for the teaching that takes place in my house. Why is that? Children are susceptible. They're easily influenced. Have you ever watched a child? Usually it's not the firstborn. Usually it's the thirdborn. I was the thirdborn. Whose brothers or sisters convince them that red is blue, up is down, and cats are dogs. Children are very easily influenced. Oftentimes on facts, not feelings. Childish brethren may be the same way, but we'll leave that for another day. Children are often influenced on facts, even when they hold firm on their feelings or opinions. Do an experiment. Try to convince a child that a dog is a cat and a cat is a dog. Don't do it to your own children. I suggest nieces or nephews. Um, grandchildren might be acceptable, but it's a little bit harder to brag. Do it to the preacher's kids in the local congregation where you're at. See if you can find them easily susceptible. Of course, we're kidding. But the Bible bears this out about the foolishness of children throughout the book of Proverbs. 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul said, When I was a child, I thought as a child. But think about Ephesians 4 and verse 14 again. He says, No longer be like children who are tossed to and fro. Like they're riding on top of a wave. 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine. It's as if a child, someone were to come in with a teaching and they'd say, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Someone else, another teaching, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. He said, don't be like children, tossed to and fro by every wind, every wave of doctrine. So instead, I have to guard my children. It's no wonder in Ephesians 6 and verse 4, that there's an admonition to fathers particularly, and parents in general. Provoke not your children to wrath, but nurture them. Where? In the chastening and admonition of the Lord. As a parent, I must feed my child. I heard that gets harder when they get older. My oldest is, is just turned 10. I heard that gets harder when they get older. I have to feed my child, but how about the parent that feeds their child physically but not mentally, challenging them to grow in that way, in that way with an education? How about the, the parent that feeds their child physically and mentally, maybe through putting them in a, a fine school, but will not feed their child spiritually? As a parent, I must be concerned about doctrine. Because I noticed that in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 6, our scripture reading, uh, the same chapter as our scripture reading, that the words of faith and good doctrine nourish the soul. If we want our children to grow in their eternal, the eternal aspect of their life, it takes doctrine, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 6. And if my children are to be built up towards an inheritance, that building must take place. According to the Word of God, Acts 20 and verse 32. Now I commend you to God and the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. Just as you and I are built up in faith by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17, so too are our children. That good doctrine would nourish them. The sound or healthy. In the Scripture that we read a few moments ago, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16. All scriptures given by the inspiration of God is profitable doctrine, approved, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Notice this that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped or thoroughly furnished for every good work. I want my children to have all the tools necessary to face this dark world. I want them to have those tools physically, mentally, emotionally, but above all, I want them to have it spiritually. And if they're going to have the spiritual tools necessary for good work, they must be taught the Word of God. And so as a parent, I care greatly about doctrine. Number five. It's just two more if you're good at math. Number five. I am concerned or I care about doctrine because I am a Christian. And every Christian should care about doctrine. You see, I must abide in the doctrine of Christ. That means live in it. Dwell in it. Second John, verse 9. Whosoever goeth onward and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. If I don't abide, live, dwell, take my, my um, livelihood from the doctrine of Christ, then I cannot have a relationship with God. That's not to elders. That's not to preachers. That's not to Bible class teachers. That's not to parents, at least not only. That's to every single Christian. To each one of us, we must abide in the doctrine of Christ. But notice the rest of that verse. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. You want a relationship with God the Father, God the Son? 
And then if we pulled in some other passages, God the Spirit as well, what would you do? You would abide or live or walk in the doctrine. So we want to live in the doctrine of Christ, to abide in the doctrine of Christ. But as a Christian, I must also grow in the doctrine. The Hebrew Christians were chastised in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, because they had not moved beyond basic doctrine. They needed to go a little further. By reason of time, you ought to be teachers, he would say in the preceding chapter. But you have need that someone teach you again the first principles of those things pertaining to Christ. It's no wonder then that Peter would close his second epistle by saying, Grow in grace and knowledge. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. And so I as a Christian must grow in my doctrine. You see, Christians and congregations in the book of Revelation chapter 2 were rebuked because they held on to false doctrine and taught it. Not just elders. Not just preachers, not just Bible class teachers, certainly not just parents, but the Christians that made up those congregations in Revelation 2, verses 15 and 16, they were rebuked for holding on to false or bad or unhealthy, cancerous doctrine. And in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, we find out that those who walk contrary to doctrine and in doing so cause division need to be marked. They need to, to, to be identified in that way. So it's important that as a Christian, I must be careful of the doctrine, the standard set of beliefs, that they must come from the Scriptures, from Christ, from heaven. I must be careful and pay attention, not just the preacher, not just the teacher, but each and every one of us must be careful of the doctrine which we hold, which we teach, and which we practice, not just on Sunday, but on Monday as well. And then finally, number six. As our time together draws to a close, why do I care about doctrine? Because I want other people to go to heaven. And without doctrine, they can't. Look back where we started. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16, I know that we've, we've flipped through a lot of Bible passages. Maybe you've jotted some of them down. Maybe you've tried to, to write them all down. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16. We read from verse 6. We consider verse 13. We consider verse um, 16, at least the first part. But I want you to look at 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes to the young Timothy. He says, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Okay, we need to pay attention to that, especially a, a, a minister, certainly. But notice what he says. Continue in these things, what? taking care of yourself as well as your doctrine. For in doing so, you shall save both yourself and them that hear thee. What were they going to hear? They were going to hear the doctrine which Timothy paid attention to, took heed to. The same thing that he was giving special attention to in verse 13. The same thing that would make him a good minister in verse 6. And if anyone wants to be saved, they cannot be saved without a, an understanding, John 6 and verse 45. That produces a faith, John 8 and verse 24. And so doctrine is of the utmost importance because I want people to go to heaven. James would say it this way in James 1 and verse 21. He would say you need to put away all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. 
as the Apostle Paul began to correct some of the thinking of the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, he would say this, that you are saved by the preaching or the things preached, depending on your version. What were they preaching? Doctrine. What are some tenets of doctrine? Let's just consider a few. And by no means is this the extent of it. But let's consider a few tonight. You see, there was in eternity God. God in three persons, a Father, Son, and a Spirit. We might better know them as God and one that we would know as God the Father. God the Word, John 1 and verse 1, and God the Spirit. An amazing thing happened in eternity as, as God considered the contemplation of creating mankind. And as God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, Genesis 1 and verse 26, God created man and woman, Genesis 1 27, and sin entered into the world not long after that. But in the eternal mind of an infinitely minded God, He prepared, prepared a way for you and I to overcome the cancerous disease of sin through Jesus. The eternal Word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among men. If you and I are willing to accept that fact, we've begun in faith. But He didn't just become flesh on your behalf and on my behalf. He took on the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, yea, death on the cross. And He died, carrying with Him the sins of the world, the chastisement of our peace, Isaiah would say in Isaiah 53, Verse 6, was laid upon his shoulders. And so now you and I can have peace with God where sin once was. Colossians 1 and verse 20. If you're visiting tonight and you don't have peace with God, you can get there through the cross. We would love to study with you about that. I know might not be here and able to do that, but I know there are a number of members of this congregation that would love to. What the Bible will bear out, though, is that if you have faith, you must act on it. You must repent of sins. Acts 17 and verse 30. Repentance is a way of saying changing your life and conforming it to God's will. You must confess with your mouth the name of Jesus. Romans 10 and verse 9. And you must be baptized into water for the remission of your sins. Acts 2 and verse 38. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, let's talk. And then live faithfully. Because just as you are resurrected to walk a new life, Romans 6, 4 and 5, you're resurrected in the likeness of Jesus because not just did He die on our behalf, but His tomb was empty three days later. And He died and rose again, never to die again. He reigns now as King of Kings. If you're one of His children, though, have you let your view of doctrine slip? Make that right. It may not take a public response. Maybe it's something you need to do privately where you stand. Is there another need you might have? Do you need to be exhorted or encouraged by the brethren here? Confess a sin of a public nature. Is there anything we can help you with or pray for you? If you have any need, we would invite you to come, to, uh, come forward as together we stand and as we sing.